Endless Hustle is presented by Eat Clean Bro, a convenient solution to bring you the highest quality chef-prepared meals delivered right to your door. Eat Clean Bro is the contract-free solution for your meal prep needs. Made with all-natural ingredients and next-day delivery, every meal feels like you have someone cooking for you right at home. I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but... I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat, but that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? All right, all right, all right, Endless Hustlers. We are back. We're trekking towards the century mark of episodes. We're back with episode 91 of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. I am your host, as I never go anywhere, because I'm here with you guys. I'm your host, Arthur Cade, and we've got a banger of an episode, a triple header, three brilliant, brilliant actors. Well, one is more of a comedian, although he's an actor as well, but he's more known for comedy, but uh, he's a great, great, great comedian. I can't wait to share that interview. The three people we have on the show are the legendary Alan Tudyk. Tudyk has got a brand new movie called Playing God, of course, all of you will know Tudyk from movies like Dodgeball and, of course, the legendary Firefly, the show that ran for one season but became a cult classic. So many other projects, but his new movie, Playing God, is really, really awesome, and we're talking all about his brilliant career. Next, one of my favorite actors of the moment right now and one of my favorite shows of all time, Showtime's Billions is back. Sundays on Showtime, we've got David Costable, Wags in the Flesh, if you're a Billions fan, you know that Wags is one of the best characters on television. The incredible thing with David is the guy is really an actor's actor. And you guys are going to be blown away after you see this interview at really how different he is from Wags. I was so taken back because the dude is shooting up the craft. And you're going to appreciate him so much more when you see how dedicated he is and what it took to make it to this point. And obviously how Wags is changing his life because Billions is a monster. And then our third guest, as I'd mentioned, one of the best, best comedians in the business, Burt Kreischer. But I was joking around, he really is an actor now. He just finished filming The Machine with Mark Hamill based on his legendary comedy skit. But Kreischer's insanely busy. He's back on tour, the Birdie Boy Tour. He's kicking it off September 8th at Red Rocks. How cool is that? He's got his podcast, it's called Birdcast, and Two Bear, One Cave with Tom Segura, another brilliant comedian. And then, of course, he's got his TBS show, Go Big Show. So Kreischer is absolutely killing it. I've known the dude for years. It was great to reconnect with him after a bunch of years. I always knew he'd achieve this level of success, but kind of blown away. He's become an A-list comedian. It's crazy. So why waste time? Let's jump right into it. First guest, the legendary Alan Tudyk. All right, we've got a great day on Endless Hustle today as I've got a man who is probably recognized for 18 different projects when he walks on the street. And I'll tell you a funny story, Alan Tudyk. Everyone's always asking me who I'm having on the show and I'll have everybody from A-list actors to billionaires to you name it. I mentioned your name to a couple people and literally got every person giving me a different response for where they know you from. And it had me dying. So my first question to you is, where do you get most recognized for? Uh, you know, it's a, maybe a little skewed for me uh, because 
I would say Firefly. I would say Firefly, which was a TV show I, I was a part of in 2003 uh, that Joss Whedon created for Fox News. And it was canceled too soon after 14 episodes, uh, which at that time was only about half a season. Um, I'm recognized for that the most beca because I'm aware that I'm recognized uh, for that the most. People walk up to me who like Firefly to say, hey, I love Firefly. Um, so I'm aware of those people more. I'll get the occasional gar or yar, uh, yar from a pirate sounding person from a distance. Uh, usually that's uh, a nod to Pirate Steve, a character I played in the movie Dodgeball with Ben Stiller. And um, those two, and now Resident Alien, really. Uh, Resident Alien, is it's more and more, uh, because it was on during, first came on during the pandemic and a lot of people didn't have a lot of stuff to watch. They were maybe over on sci-fi and you know what, whatever, whenever there was something new that came out, people had a chance to really sit down and watch it and stick with it. So, um, uh, and it was a, it's a fun, funny show. And during that time, people really gravitated to it. So um, I met a lot of Resident Alien fans. You have a new movie called Playing God and we're gonna dig into it. You get to work with Michael McKean. I can't wait to talk all about that, but. Yeah. The answer I got the most was dodgeball, but I remember being at Comic-Con and Firefly was there. And it's not like a show that ran for like 15 seasons. No, not even 15 episodes. Not even 15 episodes, but the cult following, there were literally just hordes and hordes of people there to see <laughs> you. And it blew my mind and I'd never watched Firefly. And I'm like, holy shit, I can't believe the popularity of this show. Why do people love this show so much? You know, it was at a time when, um, it, it, I don't know, it, it's, it's, it has a lot of things in it that people have now come to love in Marvel movies, definitely in James Gunn's movies, whether he's doing for Marvel or DC, because it had action and it had humor um, inside of it and uh, in a sci-fi, you know, in a sci-fi frame where, that wasn't as common back then. Um, it, and Joss Whedon knows how to do it. I mean, he, you know, he did the first Avengers and just knocked it out of the park. And uh, it, it was that, plus it has a Western, it's a space Western, which is, I mean, that's nerd mana. That really is, that's, that's, that's the sweet, sweet nectar right there. Uh, and it had, a, and the cast, Honestly, you get a good cast in different things, but that cast, just everybody was in the right role. Like there was no better actor for each of those roles. It, and we all just meshed in a really great way. And it, I could go on and on about just Firefly. Like, cause it, there were so many stories that weren't told cause it was canceled also why there was such a big following and why people move in hordes is because it was canceled too soon. And you just, just the casual viewer you could see that there was a, so many stories to be told with these characters and then it just got cut off because Fox was, um, it was just a different media landscape at that time. There weren't so many places to, to live as a show. When you, look, when you look around today, when shows get canceled, especially ones that have these incredible fan bases, all of a sudden there's this rallying point on Twitter and half the shows are getting brought back. Like Brooklyn Nine-Nine got brought back then Manifest ends up th getting thrown to Netflix. It's like number one for like 24 straight weeks or something insane. Right. Do you ever look back and wish, man, I wish Firefly could come out during this time period. This thing could have been saved. 
Yeah, it definitely could have. Uh, it, you know, we ended up making a movie uh, when the DVDs came out and people bought all the DVDs that came out and they're like, wait, we didn't even make enough of these. What is this? People like this? Uh, and Joss Whedon was pushed so hard to get it made at Universal, like got it from one studio to another studio, like the things he had to do to make that happen were big. But were it something that happened at this time, if it came out, first of all, it would have a lot more respect because sci-fi has a lot more respect than it did at that time. Um, it was before the all of the studios, you know, went to Comic-Con and like landed their Learjets there and you know, promoted everything. Uh, it Sci-fi has a lot more respect and then there are a lot of different places for it to live. And I think, you know, hopefully, I'm hoping one day it too will live again. I, I, not only do I hope, I think it will. I'm not gonna be in it, but I think it will. I think that world needs to live again. It just needs Joss Whedon, who's a great guy. And I, and I, I just see it in the future. It needs, it doesn't just need Joss. It needs Joss and it needs Nathan Fillion as Captain Mal Reynolds. That guy can be 60 um, and living on some moon somewhere. And somebody shows up and said, you're needed. And he gets in a ship and puts a crew together. And you got a bunch of new young bloods and you could have the old cast members and, and pick up them on different planets and pick up their storylines and stuff. They don't need to carry it. Um, and I think it could work. It could work as an animated thing yesterday. We could do that. We got voices and we could just pick up for there's a, there's between the TV show and the movie, there's like a few months in there of story that we don't know, though that story isn't told. So you can just stretch those few months out into an animated thing and, uh, tell that story. I want to talk to you about dodgeball because Okay. Here's a movie that has now become kind of a comedy classic. It's kind of in that old school and wedding crashers, that, that genre of like my generation grew up loving those movies. I was recently re-watching because I think I've watched it like 58 times. And you kind of think like, God, this is the stupidest fucking movie ever made, but yet it's fucking great. When right. you guys are making, are you like, am I seriously making a movie about fucking dodgeball right now? And did you have any <laughs> comprehension that it was gonna become the classic that it's now become. No, I mean, you don't know that, but it was funny. That was one thing that was pretty obvious. It was funny, people were, you know, just the the writing was really good. The script was, was really good. And, you know, Vince Vaughn and Ben Stiller worked well off of one another as rivals. It, it, it was just out there and funny. And, and Rip Torn playing our coach, you know, the, it was so, it was really out there. It pushed the bounds at that time. Like, I feel like animation has pushed uh, the bounds even farther in what people say and do in, in things that we watch. Um, the things have gotten pretty crass, but you know, I don't know if I can say the things that, <laughs> that he talked about, you know, let's go get some Go get a blister and hand job. I mean, let's get some of that. You know, that you're as useless as a cock flavored lollipop. Like it was just, I love the whole stuff that they were watching dodgeball on the Ocho. Uh, that, that was uh, ESPN 8, ESPN 8, the Ocho. And there's just little, little things like that in there that just kept it going. And the SM gear, like all the weird, it was just a bizarre kind of out there movie. It was right there when there was 
it was before Will Ferrell started making all those really good sports movies, you know, like comedy sports um, movies, like the Talladega Nights, which is so great. You know, it's just a, it's a great setup for uh, comedy. You know, you're rooting for him. You, you get caught up in it. It can get, it can get crazy. And dodgeball is a sport that so many people have played and still have deep, deep scars on playing. <laughs> When you get a script like that, obviously it's like, this is an Oscar bait, right? But when you get a script like that and they're like, Alan, we want you to play a pirate. <laughs> like, is it like, are you good? Are you like to your agents? Like, is this for real? Are you like, this is entertaining? Like, what's your reaction when you see that script or your pitch that idea? My first reaction, my honest reaction was I called my manager and said, you know what? This script is very funny. And if they lose that pirate character, it's a hit. <laughs> and he said, yeah, real quick, uh, they, they're interested in you for the pirate. So maybe read it again. And so I read it again and I got the humor of the character, but also I, how cool, how cool it would be to play that character. And then I got to see what it was like, you know, he's, uh, he's kind of the heart. He's sort of the heart of that, that group. You know, he believed, he didn't just believe in dodgeball. He believed that he was a pirate he believed he believed in imaginary things that, about treasure and it all came true in the end it's it's he has a beautiful little arc in that movie so uh in the beginning i was i i was unsure i think when i first got when i got to the audition i saw a bunch of people that i respected as actors auditioning as well and i was like okay so this is real this is that 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 little thing that glimmer i see everybody here is seeing so if patrick warburton can audition for this then i can audition for this too that was that's right. yeah it's amazing i literally was re-watching it and it's just such a classic but when you look at the premise also the wealth of talent in there jason bateman obviously has gone on he had a brilliant career before but he's gone on to even bigger and badder things since vince obviously is an icon you've got stiller who's stiller and you're just like Oh my God, the wealth of talent in this movie from top to bottom. You've got every, you've got half of Hollywood in this movie. It's incredible. Yeah, Justin Long. I think it was one of his early, early films. Yeah, he's fantastic. Missy Pyle, who plays the Russian uh, with the teeth and the one eyebrow. She did a fantastic job and she's in, a, she's in so many things. Uh, yeah. It was, uh, yeah, Gary, Gary Cole. Oh, Gary Cole, who oh. does, ends up doing Veep, one of the best comedies of our generation. Yeah, man. Yeah, he's in there. That's another one that's like, oh, right, Shatner. <laughs> yeah. You, you literally have like Shatner coming off the bench for like a cameo, and you're like, we're bringing in the reserves right now. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. Another movie that just celebrated a huge milestone, and it got me thinking of you, was the Dark, the Dark Knight, and you got oh, to uh, with, uh, um, uh, Night's Tale. Or, well, no, a Night's Tale, but also the Dark Knight, and the common thread between those two is a guy named Heath Ledger, who you got to work with in a Night's Tale. Oh yes, because he was obviously the Joker in a Dark Knight. Right. In the Dark Knight, talk to right. me about Heath. You obviously got to work with young Heath Ledger, who then ends up becoming now an icon and obviously delivers one of the great villain performances in superhero history. Right. But did you, when you're working with him, did you have an inkling of what was about to happen with the guy in terms of 
how much he was going to blow up and how talented an actor he was? I mean, yeah, Heath is, Heath, Heath always had like a winning personality, just like, um, I don't know, he was, he was a winner. He just kind of, he was, uh, he was a natural leader. He had a sparkle, man. Um, remember he did a photo shoot when we were doing that movie for Vanity Fair, I think it was. And it was when I saw those pictures that I was like, oh, you're a star. <laughs> oh, okay, I see. Because uh, it was like him with an accordion and just him out in the, you know what I'm we were in Prague. It was in the Czech Republic that they did the photo shoot. And he's like, I got to go do this thing. And uh, he just, he looks casually. It's just that extra thing, that star thing. Um, but he was a cool guy. He was a really, he was a cool guy. He was a sweetheart, uh, genuine guy. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that those things made me think he would be a star, the genuine sweetheart thing. But um, it was cool that he got there being a genuine cool sweetheart of a guy you know? can you sense that when you're working with certain people whether it's heath or anybody else can you sense when we can obviously see it on screen but when you're actually working with them when you're in the midst of it can you sense when somebody has that it quality no i don't think so hell no i think you could be in a scene with somebody and act with them in the scene actually experiencing the scene like on film and not know how good they are because film is picking up like some people like christian bale that i worked with in uh, 310 to yuma he 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 has subtlety that i didn't i wasn't picking up while we were working together it wasn't that i thought he was bad but when i saw it on film i was like whoa are you just I saw stuff that I didn't see with my naked eye on the day. Like he, he really, he's operating on multiple levels that I didn't immediately see. So yeah, you can be with, uh, yeah, you can be with somebody and not know. I mean, that's incredible. You're, you're literally right there with somebody and they're doing these minor movements, probably eye, eye movements and chin movements. And you as an actor right there, don't pick it up, but the camera, we'll see it and that's where the acting the actual higher form of acting really kicks in yeah vocally too and that's another big one because the audio can pick up so much so somebody can be talking very very low and operating in just a, a that short band of sound that's just barely audible but you know they're like playing a stradivarius in that area and uh and you're not, I, I, you can't, you don't necessarily pick it up on the day. Incredible. Well, you've got this new movie, Playing God. So let's jump into that for a sec. Obviously, okay. you play a billionaire. You are in sense of a higher purpose, in search of a higher purpose. Michael McKean, who's one of my all-time favorites. For those, I, I'm 43, so I remember Laverne and Shirley. But obviously, yeah. Michael, Michael's gone on to many other, many other projects, right. including... Obviously, the, the 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 Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad universe, which has introduced him to a whole new generation. Yeah. But this movie, it's about essentially trying to figure out how to, not for lack of a better word, but how to extend life, how to find a bigger purpose, right? That sounds exactly right. That, uh, 
Yeah, well, my character, this billionaire, who he loses his daughter, she dies, and he loses his um, loses his faith uh, and his connection to life. He's stuck. He's stuck in the past. Like how to how to live a bigger life? It's beyond that, you know. Uh, for him, he's he's not even living the one he has. You know, it's, he he loses his faith, and then he sees the entire world in the starkest light just we're animals on the planet you know just struggling to survive living and dying what's it all what's it worth and he wants answers he wants he wants god to explain this to him why there's no he can't find the rhyme or reason in that bugs and he wants a he he wants cause and effect this happens this person's bad so bad things happen if you're good if you've got a especially a child who's beautiful and perfect and wonderful why? Why would you take that? Why would you do that to them? And uh, he gets taken advantage of in a in a heist scheme because he's in a vulnerable place. But it asks all those questions and looks for those answers because I get to work with Michael McKeon, who plays God, and tricks me into thinking he's actually God on Earth. And so I get to have that those conversations with him. So it, it's a it was a great. Um, I mean, it was sad. It was a place of, of loss to be in when I was filming the thing. There was, that was always close by, but seeking answers from God is, I don't know, there's something really nice about that. Here's the real question. If you were a billionaire in real life, what would Alan Tudyk, the billionaire, look like? Would you just be getting FU purchase after FU purchase? Like, would there be <laughs> mega yachts outside your mansion in Star Island in Miami? Like, what would super billionaire Alan Tudyk act like? I would hopefully be trying to make the world a better place with my billions. I think we've got enough billionaires who are, yeah, I wouldn't be shooting myself into space. Uh, I would be working on uh, helping people on earth get fed. You know, I, I think, I think that's, that's what I would be doing. Um, I don't think I'd be running for office or doing any of those types of vanity things. It would be about, Helping others um, in the U.S., I think the U.S. could use some help, like getting that. Um, you know what I would do? Here's what I would do. Uh, this is see, then it gets everything's political anymore. I would help. There's a lot of money to. Um, and let's just leave it there. I would help people. <laughs> I'll keep the politics out. I would help people. God, I, I always think about having that kind of money, what it's like and how corruptive it can be. I mean, how just, I think I would just buy. I don't know if I could control my spending. It would be so dangerous. Right. Yeah, I can't imagine. I, I mean, well, I can't, I can't imagine. I guess when you become a billionaire, I wonder if you get the ability to comprehend a billion dollars, like what that is. It seems that's so much. It's so much. I, 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 I'm pretty happy, you know. I, I'm very comfortable. I'm, you know, my wife and I, we don't have kids and we, you know, we, we live a very comfortable life. We don't have huge homes and things like that. We've, we've never been those people. We don't, we don't need a boat. We don't, <laughs> nah. I and you don't have to pay it. for education, by the way. There, that's why you're comfortable. No education expenses equals comfortable. Right, and we paid off our loans. We paid over our school loans now. Yes, so that got that monkey off our back, but that took a long time. 
gosh, that takes a long time. So when do you decide you want to be an actor? You're a kid from Texas. You grew up, you're born in El Paso. When does acting get in the blood? When do you decide this is what I want to do for my vocation? I, I did a community theater play when I was 11, 12. And my friends in my neighborhood came to see it. It was at the mall. It was performed at the mall. in this one little, I think it was a large storage room that they converted into a theater for the day. And uh, my friends came and I was ripe for ridicule because I was playing this, it was called the Fabulous Fable Factory. And I was playing a wisecracking rabbit who had like a transistor radio, was talking trash about how he was gonna beat the turtle and all of that and then he loses. And I was really hanging it out there and I, and I was expecting to get smacked down from my friends. And they didn't, they had like this kind of kind of stunned thing going on. I thought, oh, that's good. That's, that's definitely not normal. And um, that was when, that was really when I got bit by the bug there in the Collin Creek Mall in Plano, Texas, doing uh, Fabulous Fable Factory, playing the, the hair. And yeah, I just continued in middle school. I didn't go to any arts magnet or anything like that, just, doing little plays in middle school and kept it going through speech tournaments. I didn't even do plays my ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th grade years. I just did speech tournaments, which is something that I, I think is kind of fading out a little bit. Uh, it used to be very uh, humorous interpretation, dra dramatic interpretation, improv. There was a lot of improv competitions. It was very cool. You win trophies. I loved that stuff. So that's where I got my start. And then a teacher convinced me to go to college for it, which was, I'm very thankful for that. And once I made the decision to go to college for acting, I never, I was all in and had that drive that you kind of need to, to make it from Texas to, I don't know, Broadway or, you know, Hollywood. When do you get discovered? When do you get your true first <laughs> role? And how does it happen? I got, I did a, I, I went to Juilliard, which was very helpful. And then I did a play off Broadway called uh, Bunny Bunny about Gilda Radner with Bruno Kirby and a girl named Paula Kale and me. It was the three of us. And I played 20 something roles in the play. It was, they, stayed the same two characters, Gilda Radner and Alan Zweibel, Bell. And I would just come in one, one side of the stage as a French waiter and then I'd run off stage. I'd come on the other side. He's some guy that they knew from another time who had one eye and he lost his thumb in a lathe accident and then run off. So I was constantly sort of, it became a, it was a showy role in that way. Cause it's like wigs and costumes and like, how did he change so fast? And there's a new character. And since there was 20 of them, plus it, it was a nice uh, introduction to the New York theater scene. And I was castable then. And then I did a few different plays in New York and did a Broadway play. It didn't last long, but it was fun. And uh, from, but from that play, from Bunny Bunny, my man, the guy who was producing that play, because it was about Saturday Night Live, was Bernie Brillstein. And he said he would be my manager. And so Bernie brought me out to LA. And that was really, I don't think I would have just gone to LA ever. Uh, he was sort of insistent on it. So 
and then it just became like a, a, a I didn't have any like rocket to the top. I just kind of worked here and there, here, there, here, there, here, there. And but it all started with Bunny Bunny. It's amazing. You just literally broke into character and you do so many voices. You do a ton of voice acting, <laughs> whether it's Halo or you're in the DC universe. Is it, I hear from actors all the time, voice acting is the best job there is. You show up, you're in front of a mic and you just go into character. It's easy money, as they always say. Right. Is it easy money or is it actually tougher than acting? <laughs> it's not tougher than acting. Uh, it's, e it's easier than acting in the, in the sense that you can just do 30 takes and you wasted just a few minutes. You don't, you, you can, you know, depending on who you're working for and, and what the, you know, what the job is. Um, doing Disney movies is very special and, and particularly fun um, because they, they really uh, allow you to find it and develop it. They, there's a, there's a double-edged sword there. I mean, it, I like doing that, but you also don't have another choice. Like how I tend to do these jobs, Disney jobs is they'll be like, do you want to do this? And I'll say yes. And then I'll know very little about it until the night before I record. And then I'll get just a few pages. It depends on how big the role is. When I did King Candy, I, I was part of that process the whole way. But, um, and sometimes that isn't too debilitating if you're playing Hey Hey, because it's just a lot of And so you don't have to really put in a lot of thought, but that can be nerve wracking. But it's, you're in a booth. I understand. I've done it enough now. I like, I get the technical aspects of it. And uh, yeah, I, I'm starting to get good at it, I think. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say so. There's enough on your IMDb that shows that. Yeah, that's an opportunity. Like, I've been given the opportunity. Like, once I did King Candy, a lot of people were like, oh, I, got, I won an award. And they're like, yes, you can come do this. So then, so then that became like training. Like now you get jobs. So you do, you know, voiceover jobs. You can do three in a day, three different jobs in a day. If you're doing one film, you know, it's like months and months, you know, just one film, you can't do too many other things. So uh, that just becomes training, kind of like get better at it, get better at it, get better at it. I'm starting to get there. In I was 10 just... years, I'm going to be nailing it. 10 years, you might make it in this industry, right, Alan? You might yeah. have a career. That's my hope. That's my plan. I was just listening to a great interview with Matt Damon, who's been all over the place promoting his new movie, Stillwater. And he talked about how in the 90s, it was him, Affleck, and a bunch of those other actors, Ed Norton, who were all essentially competing for all the same roles. Hmm. And one would get Mr. Ripley, but then another one would get Primal Fear. And it was just this constant game of musical chairs. And it got me thinking about Hollywood's such a small world when it comes down to it. And you guys are all and girls are all competing for essentially the same roles for the best scripts. Was there a role that you were up for that you're like, I'm getting this thing that you ended up not getting that you look back and you were like, shit, can't believe I didn't get that one. How things could have been different. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's different though. You know, for me, I mean, I'm not, you know, we're not like I, the character actors, you know, the character actors, there's some great character actors, you know, out there. Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> but, you know, I don't want to say what it is because the guy who got it did a great job and I don't want to, you know, it's, at the time, it, it would have been cool, but it didn't happen. The thing about acting is, and it's a, 
really good thing is that you say meant to be. You know, I think that's a good philosophy in life. This is meant to be, you know, that acceptance. If you can get to a place of acceptance of whatever the hell is going on, that you just accept it and move on. You don't spend your time like the guy in playing God, not in not accepting the fact that his daughter was taken from him, not moving forward and seeing what he can do now, you know, making, investing his money, doing something besides just spinning in place and drinking and, and you know, lost in his own hell. And that, that thing of meant to be is really, if, if you can't find that, then you're going to get lost in your own hell. So I'm, it was in the 90s. That was in the 1900s, man. I can't go back there, even think about it. By the way, I, I've asked this question many times over the years, and the reaction you just gave is probably eight out of 10. Usually, <laughs> it, it's so funny because every actor, female or male always has that one or two roles but it's so hard to say it a because you're right usually the person who got it ended up doing such a great job that's why it became iconic but yeah. also b there can be a pain associated with that you're like man there was a connection there and it's funny because i just had sanaa lathan and it was the same thing she literally went in her own head and you could see her reliving the moment it was right. amazing well, I, you know, like I heard that Tom Selleck, and I think that's true, Tom Selleck turned down a role for Indiana Jones. That is true. Well, now when I see Tom Selleck, I think, loser. I, I mean, there's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of that when I see Tom Selleck about that, that I think like, man, that was dumb. And that certainly, Tom Selleck does not wake up. He can't wake up every day thinking, I can't believe I turned that down. He doesn't care. He's moved on. He's doing Blue Bloods or whatever he's doing. His life is, is not about that one job that one day. So, but to someone who loves that movie and sees that movie, like, wow, Indiana Jones and sees what a, gosh, that's awful that you turned that down. Well, the uh, what you're talking about, there's a fantastic podcast called The Rewatchables that Bill Simmons okay. hosts on The Ringer. And they do all these movies that they call rewatchables, kind of like a dodgeball, movies that become cable wow. favorites. So they talked all about the Selleck. And Magnum P.I. wouldn't let him out of their filming schedule. And he had already locked in. And they were actually debating, would Selleck have potentially even been better than Harrison Ford? But it's funny because you think Harrison Ford goes on to become Harrison Ford. Selleck, again, not no slouch of a career, but... You think about the dichotomy change, it's incredible. Yeah. Harrison Ford was already Han Solo, so you know you're gonna how it didn't go to Han Solo, how it didn't go to Harrison Ford immediately. I, I don't know. And that's rough that that was about his contract. Cause have you I, I rewatched some Magnum PIs. Some of those were kooky, crazy, like like bad TV. There's good, it's fun, and it's kind of hokey now to watch and fun, but my God, there some of those writers were just like, in some of the later seasons, like, I don't know, then a bird comes down and attacks her in the face? I don't, it's, it's really weird, weird storylines. Well, speaking of which, and you've got Resident Alien coming back for season two, TV right now is like in a different stratosphere. I was just watching The White Lotus on HBO, Succession, I'm like, these shows are so fucking great, it's ridiculous. Mm. I mean, the writing, the acting, it's next level shit now when you look at tv right now it really is like an actor's playground isn't it, it really is the place to be 
what's great about TV, yes, and what's great about it that makes it a more of a playground is that you can be doing a show like I'm doing Resident Alien. If uh, I can go do other shows, if if I can make it work in my schedule, like I have three months off. If I'm able to do a mini series, which now they do, which it makes so great, you can just tell a story over seven episodes, which is great because it used to be 24 or 23 episodes. You'd you'd have to commit to a seven-year contract and 23 episodes a year. Anyway, they had a lot more power. The studios had the power and you signed it away and they made their decisions. But I can go do other things as well on different networks and it's all right. I I turned down, I was on my way to a, a audition on for ABC once in my car. I was in line at the studio to get, to give them my ID to go in and test for this thing. And I was the favorite. It doesn't mean I would have gotten it but they, they wanted me for this role at that time and for a TV show. And we had gone back and forth. I wanted to make something. I wanted to create this thing called Comman, which I ended up making later. Uh, I was like, let me just, t- t- how about if I don't make it for anybody, but I just put it on YouTube. I make one episode and I put it on YouTube. I have to make this thing. If they will allow me to do that, then I will test for their thing and like they were lawyers and lawyers and it was like just get in your car and go to the studio like they pushed it right to the end and I was in line and ABC came back and they're notorious Disney's notorious their lawyers are scary people or they're just very a lot of conviction um so no you you will not be allowed to put it on YouTube make it whatever you make you can't put it on YouTube because uh, we consider them like that a competitor I got out of line, put on my blinker, got out of line, turned out and said, then take your TV show. I don't want to do it. No way. Uh, yeah. I lost my agents. I lost, <laughs> that was a, that was a dark day. They were upset with me. That's but, crazy, Alan. I mean, like you literally. That wasn't too many years ago. That wasn't, that was, uh, I mean, we're talking, that's six years ago. Like that's not long. Things have changed fast. Are you at that point, if you're getting dropped by your agents, are you like, holy shit, did I fuck up my whole career here? I mean, is that like, what did I do? It causes problems. Um, You know, to get a new agent is hard. You know, you need, it's just, it's just a new, you got to shift so many things and you hope you, you know, when you have agents that you get along with, obviously we were at an impasse and we were at a, we were at a crossroads and we, we walked away from one another um it's who knows who knows who knows what the what it's going to be like they're going to ask them why did they why did he why did you quit working with alan and if if the new agents don't like that answer then maybe they're not into working with you either i don't know how important that is you know it depends you find i would find somebody but who is he working out of a van at the farmer's market maybe it's like Better Call Saul. It's Bob Odenkirk's right. character. Like, I'll get you some jobs. Right. He's working out of a nail salon. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So it is a playground now. There's much more opportunity. There's a lot of different forms of storytelling. Um, animation is really alive right now. Uh, gosh, so much animation, which is great. Um and there's different, you can say more with animation, you can do more with animation and certain stories. You know, just you can tell different stories with animation that you can't with live action. But then live action is so awesome that they're 
I just saw that uh, Taika Waititi is, he was going to do a animated movie that now they're doing live action. I can't remember what it is, but like, because I feel like James Gunn and like what he's doing, like he's doing things that you wouldn't, they're just so out there that you're like, yeah. And well, Taika Waititi's doing stuff that's out there, you know, Thor, Ragnarok, or, yeah, Marvel. Yeah, Ragnarok, I'm thinking Love and Thunder, but that's one is now yet. Ragnarok was so vivid and fun and crazy and and funny that you can do an action film that's funny. That's great. It it's, is, it is, man. It's a good time. Dude, this was awesome. Before I let you go, the main reason that I started the show was to talk to successful people about the principles and mentalities that help make them successful. My question to you, Alan Tudyk, is... What are the principles you incorporate in your life to continue to elevate and raise your standards to move to the next level? I hate making the same mistake twice. I really um, try to learn from my mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. Everybody's going to make mistakes, but you, you don't have to make them multiple times. So, you know, and that's the, and, and doing that is you have to acknowledge your mistakes to, to learn from them and to not make them again. So uh, that involves some self-awareness and curiosity and uh, humility and uh, acceptance, that acceptance thing again. Uh, those, those things are helpful. Um, yeah, just trying to um, trying to celebrate others, you know, really enjoy, I, I, I don't know, I enjoy acting, I enjoy what I do. So that, that's something that's really helpful. And I enjoy watching others do it well. I just naturally do. I, I, I'll clap at my TV <laughs> because an actor does something that's just, I mean, it just hits me so deeply like, wow, how did you do that? I can't, I don't know that. So, so finding inspiration in your fellow actors and, and not, you know, there, there's an opposite thing, which I, I got trapped in when I was young or suffered from when I was young, where you see somebody who might be, you know, one of your contemporaries, maybe get a role that you wanted or that you're constantly up against. And you put a comp, you compete with them on things in your head. Like you see them doing well. And instead of a feeling of, oh, that's so great. They're so good. You're like, oh, I wish they would I wish they could fail a little bit more. Why don't they do a little casual drunk driving? Why don't, why don't they take up a very dangerous sport in their off time? Um, but to, you know, to celebrate the people around you because they're your contemporaries because you're gonna work together one day. That's, I think that's as I'm older, what happens is you pick, I, I pick people out. Like I'd see them and things and be like, I don't like them. They're, I don't like their work, they're not great. And then you work with them and you meet them. And you're like, I love that guy. That guy's the best. Or I love that, that lady. She's the greatest. And you do that enough and you're like, all right, so you can't tell anything from anything. And, you know, at a certain point, it's about celebration. So I think that's, that's the better place to get there as quick as possible. And yeah, enjoy. Dude, this was awesome. Playing God is in theaters now. Resident Alien back for season two. Alan, thanks for a fabulous interview, my man. Yeah, man. Thank you. It's been fun. All right, brother. Enjoy your Sunday. Thanks so much, man. 
Cheers. All right. Take, Take care. care. You too. Bye. Take care. Bye. All right, folks, that was, of course, Alan Tudyk. What an incredible interview. That dude's got so many stories. I always love talking to these veteran actors because their trek through Hollywood and the ups, the downs, the ebbs and the flows, we always see these guys and girls and we're like, oh, it's got to be so great to be famous in Hollywood. But we forget the, the dirty work that you have to do to make it. And obviously, you never know if you're going to have a job in Tudyk. Uh, you never know if you're going to have a job. And Tudyk is a great example of perseverance and a dude who's really made it and built a great career for himself. And again, his new movie is called Playing God. It's all over the place now, so go check it out. Really, really cool premise. Great movie. Next up, a man who needs no introduction, especially if you're a fan of Billions, as I am, Wags himself, the one, the only, David Costable. Enjoy. Great interview. All right, we've got a great day on The Endless Hustle today because here's the greatest compliment I can give any actor, David Costable. I'm at dinner last night. I'm in the West Village. People always ask me, who do you have on the show tomorrow or this week? I go, David Costable. You would have thought it was Brad Pitt. They're nice. Wags is so beloved, man. Can you believe how much people love this character? I, You know, it's, it, is, it is very hard. And I will tell you... Uh, it is hard to accept some days, but it is a fantastic feeling. I mean, I'll tell you, when I go to set, I know that I get to say the best shit that anybody is going to say on the show. I have the most fun all the time. Um, I'll tell you, very early on in like the second season, I was walking, I was going to the grocery store, and all of a sudden, this the 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 sanitation worker who was driving down my street to pick up the garbage picked like stopped and he was like fucking wags i fucking love you and i was like wow we've got a hit on our hands this is this is uh this is a good that's sign. when you know when random shit like that starts happening you know you're like i'm gonna make it at least five seasons with this show exactly when exactly. you first see this script obviously Koppelman and what these guys were able to write and sorkin i was a financial advisor for a decade so nice. i understand that world Nice. The way these guys have captured it is so accurate in the attitudes and the cockiness and the fucking ego inflation. It's insanity. When you first see this script, are you like, this is bonkers. Like, I can't wait to fucking run with this. Well, the first, you know, the character as written in the pilot was completely the opposite. I was the strong, silent type, an Upper East Side wasp. I was very quiet. I had no, none of the, none of the facial hair and none of the bling. and we had they, they we filmed it and then the guys watched it and they were like we've got to cut it all so they cut everything i did in the pilot and then they were just like you've got to do the exact opposite just go nuts just go crazy um and you are just like this unbridled id and i was like oh okay but i'll tell you i never would have gotten cast in this role those guys knew brian and david knew me really well and i had worked for them before so they knew that i could do that but if i had been if i had gone in to be cast as the wags as he stands now i never would have gotten why is that? Is are you just too normal in real life and they couldn't envision you turning it up to 12? I think that most people had never seen me do that. I had never played this particular kind of role before. I had played bad guys before, different kinds of bad guys, but no one had ever seen that sort of like, you know, just rapacious bastard. Um, and obviously he resides deep inside of me somewhere. Um, so I, it was, and it was one of those things like as soon as, as soon as um, there was this one great, uh, 
there's this one great in the second episode you won't remember this but in the second episode this um this fantastic actor Louis Kinchomi, who was who eventually came back was fired in the very first in the in the second episode um and it was like the I think it was the first it was the first scene where like the new wags had to come out and he was and he sort of like wags or axe fires him and he was like this is bullshit and he kind of takes a step forward and I took a step forward like I'll 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 eat you I'll eat your whole body right now if you take another step and Lewis is a very buff strong guy and I am not a very buff strong guy and I was like oh my god this is it this is it he's just ready he's just always ready to attack um and has literally no like there's no fear there's absolutely like on the fear spectrum that just his goes back and forth never registers you've had such a wonderful career and it's funny because you've been a part of so many incredible TV shows, whether it's Damages, The Wire, obviously, The Wire is one of the greatest all time. And I want to talk about that in a second. Do you know like when it's going to be good? So do you know, outside of a garbage man screaming at you on the street, do you, do you know, hey, this show is going to actually really resonate and connect with people? You know, I think, I think in the beginning when you, I think you, I mean, each one of them is totally, totally different. Um, I think you're, there's always the hope and, and certainly even ones where, uh, you know, ones that you thought you were going to be good and then turn out to not be as well received as you hoped they would be. Um, it, it, you never, you actually never really, you never really know. I mean, I think on some level there is a real optimist optimism about that kind of, about storytelling in general. Like your the hope is that we're going to tell a story and it's going to come over and people are going to actually enjoy it. But also that inside of it there are so there's so many different people and factors that go into making it that it can fall apart at any minute and you have literally no power over it and no and even the people who are in fact in control of it don't have that much control of it because it's just they are their own animals i mean this one was this one is an incredibly lucky and and it's a godsend because you know i get to be home i get to be in new york making a television show that I love with great writing and really fantastic other actors. And it just doesn't, you just never get, you never get that, you know, I mean, we did the wire was in Baltimore. We did breaking batters in Albuquerque and um, you know, damages also luckily was here. Uh, But you, you just never get all of those particular things. Um, But certainly when you, when you read something and the, and obviously the writing drives it, good writing is going to, going to be, um, the great driver. In this situation, the context of the story, the financial world, I didn't really have any understanding of, knowledge of, you know, I, I didn't have any background in it. And so meeting those guys and going to those trading floors and being around them, and then you're like, oh, I, I get it, I get it. I mean, you know from your own experience that as soon as you walk in, you understand it. It's not like a there isn't a great amount of nuance that one that that goes into actually figuring out all of the ins and outs. I mean, in the storytelling that we we do, there is, <clears throat> but in terms of the context of the story, like where where are we? What are we? What what kind of world are we living in? Um, it was very easily ascertainable. And then you kind of once you you know because because I think in this show. It isn't, it isn't just the context that we get right, but also the story that we get right. So there is a great amount of inside baseball that goes on in the storytelling, which I think is fun for people who actually recognize it, but also that it actually can resonate with people who, who, don't, who don't know about the financial world. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you, because I know I still am friends with all the guys I started with when I was in my early Do 20s. Do they watch? They all watch. Dude, you, you, 
Wags is a fucking icon. He's because Jesus how Christ do you not watch Christ. a te- if you work in the financial sector? How do you not watch a television show that's well, actually it, about it? If it's shit, you don't watch it. But your show is so good. Here's the thing: people won't understand. Outside of being a professional athlete or a movie star, there's probably no other career where you have a bigger ego and a bigger perception of who you are than being either a financial advisor, investment banker, hedge fund manager, something in that world, right? Agreed. So. The way you guys bring it, I mean, Axe is in a whole different ego universe. I mean, that guy is like, but then Wags is, like you said, the henchman and the hitman behind him and the id. I thought I love that. That's such an actor's term. But only people who've experienced that can really understand what you guys and girls in the show are capturing. So I think people in that industry watch and they see themselves reflected so accurately. So I was going to ask you, do you get approached by people from finance and are they just like over the moon when they see you? I was in Las Vegas at one point and I, and some guy who obviously worked in this particular sector and had a, a great excitement about seeing Wags early in the morning. And he obviously had not been sleeping a lot, um, came up to me and he was like, can I pick you up? And I was like, what? He's like, can I pick you up? And I was like, no, you can't pick me up. And he's like, no, no, bro, let me pick you up. And I was like, no, bro, you cannot pick me up. That is where I actually draw the line at excitement. When people come up to me and they want to pick me up, I'm not an actual doll. I'm not a Wags doll. I just am the actor who plays Wags. Do they expect you? And I would have, I always love talking to actors. When you play such a large character and then people meet you, they yeah. expect you to be that character. And they don't realize yeah. like, Shit, I'm just, I'm just an actor. He's just a middle-aged dad. He's right, like, right. You're like, I'm a normal a dude who lives dad. in Brooklyn. Like, exactly. leave me alone. Yeah. Do you have, do you feel like you have to turn it on in those instances, or can you just be you? I, I mean, there are definitely times when, uh, you know, there are charity events where I've gone, and, you know, there, like, Cantor Fitzgerald has this one where you go and you trade on, and I've gone there many years and done, done it. And there is a, there's definitely a flavor of wags that I walk in with that I think, carries a long way in terms of people getting what they are hoping for. Um, you know, walking down the street in a restaurant, I'm not gonna be uh, shouting out and being Wagsian. There's not gonna be any of that. When you're part of a New York show that essentially ends up becoming iconic, and I've seen this with Mariska Hargitay and so many others, oh, yeah. you get preferential treatment in New York because Billions is so popular. Can you get restaurant reservations anywhere? Do you get can you walk to the front of the line of your coffee shop? Are there fringe benefits with being wags? Like, you're just like everybody. I know he gives a damn about you. They're just like, yeah, get, get in line, dude. I don't give a shit about you. The bagel place, my bagel place, the guys at my bagel place will get, definitely give me an extra bagel for sure. There's no extra bagel. And I'm like, they don't even, they're like, hey, Wags. They're like, who's that guy? Like, I don't give a damn. Who is he? I don't watch his, what is he? He's on the television show. I don't watch it. So I have to congratulate you. You're the new Pepsi spokesperson, by the way. So you've got to walk me through. How how does the whole Pepsi ad campaign happen? And then how does, like, how do you get notified of what the creative is going to be around that? Um, that was, I, I guess that was the sort of the first thing What they were, they had, had approached, um, me and, and said, uh, here is, here is what we're thinking. And they had sent the script and I thought it was really funny. 
Um, and I was like, oh, I could definitely do that. That seems like a, that seems like a gas. And it seems, um, you know, there was, I was reading some, some response on Instagram about it being like uh, St. Crispin's Day from Henry V. And I have in fact been in Henry V twice in the park. And, um, and so I was like, oh yeah, this is just like St. It was in fact, when I read it, I was like, oh yeah, this is just like a football St. Crispin's Day speech. So I was like, I've done Shakespeare. I've done lots of Shakespeare. And I was like, that's kind of fun. It, and it seemed like a fun sort of confluence of my own sense of rage and, um, and language. So, and I thought the language was funny. So I thought it was, I, it was a very enjoyable, it was a great, very fun experience and it was very quick. And um, they turned those things around spectacularly fast, unlike, you know, the end of the fifth season of Billions, which has taken a year and a half to do, so. I had Frank Grillo on the show yesterday, but he has a movie on it. I've had nice. Frank on the show now twice this year. He's the best dude, he's hilarious, by the way. But when I was talking to him about Billions, he actually just talked about, here's a guy who's been in Hollywood forever and had incredible roles, but he pretty much said Billions is now what he's getting recognized for. And it essentially has changed his life. Has it had the same effect, even though you've been a part of so many great projects, is billions a life changer for you? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, not, you know, it, it definitely it definitely changes the the, the recogni recognition in the neighborhood that you go to. If you're in Midtown, it's Wags, and if you're in the East Village, it's Breaking Bad. And um, you know, you go to a deep dive with certain people, they're like The Wire, and then you're like, "Ooh, nice, nice. That's that's impressive." Um, <laughs> So it's definitely changed where you what where you're going to be recognized in what neighborhood in the city. But in terms of a real life changer, no, it hasn't. Not really. Not for me. By the way, I love how you just demographically broke down the neighborhoods of New York by TV by, shows. By TV like, shows. You're like Breaking Bad, the East Village. So it's a bunch of hipsters, right? Sure. You're like pretty much matching it up. I love it. Yeah. I fell into a wormhole last night on WAG's one-liners. Oh, nice. Because wow. Showtime has all those different videos and I'm like on YouTube looking at all these rogue videos. Right. What has been some of your favorite one-liners? And do I you mean, continue to deliver them, by the way? There are, there's some, like, I can't, I have literally no memory. I have almost no memory at all of any of, any of the shit that I've said. Um, until then I, I see it and I'm like, oh my God, that's a disgusting thing to say. I can't believe that. And my children are gonna grow up and when they grow up, they're gonna eventually watch this and be like, dad, that's really foul. Like Catherine the Great, come on. The Virgin Mary before her first period, Jesus, God help us. What, what's wrong with you? Um, so it's certainly, it's certainly fun when I've gone back and seen those and the ones that Showtime has put together, very, you're like, oh, right, I said that. I'm like, I can't believe I did that. It, there's there literally it is. sizzle reels. There's like miniature sizzle reels of yeah. Wags one-liners, and I'm clicking <laughs> video to video last night. I'm like, how do Koppelman and that team write this shit? I'm just like, this is so genius. I think there are very there are members of they enjoy leaning into writing for Wags. I think that there has been. Um, many instances where uh, things have had to have been cut because they've gotten too, it's, it's too much wags and people are just like, okay, let's pull back. Let's take a little, let's take a breather from this. Um, but I think that they enjoy, everybody enjoys writing a good zinger for, for wags, that's for sure. I want to turn back the clock. You're a kid from Washington, D.C. You end up going, getting an oh, MFA. Nice. Yep. 
and you, you're now starting as an actor. What is it like? You're out of college, yeah. you have the degree. What is it like as a, as a starting off actor in New York City? I mean, I had started, like, I went to, I went to college with, with Brian Koppelman at Tufts University and then, uh, and then was out for three years, like, touring around the country, working in Atlanta and Washington, D.C. I helped start a free Shakespeare company up in Albany, New York, that we were going to change the world, and, which we did, obviously. Um, and, and then I decided to go back to grad school. And so I had spent many years sort of being, like, really slogging it out and trying to get somewhere. And um, and then realized like I needed to go back and really have a full, real, actual conservatory training, um, and that really changed. That changed so much of. I mean, that was the game changer for me in terms of knowing that I could be able to do it in lots of different places in lots of different ways for the rest of my life. Um, and so that was a great and invaluable experience that I had. And when you get out, you know, you it you kind of get like a little stamp of approval. So you're walking into auditions with a stamp and you kind of hold up your stamp and you'd be like, I got the stamp. And they're like, they're like, okay, come on in, you get the stamp. Um, and so like my first, my first gig out of grad school was, I was in uh, Troilus and Cressida in Shakespeare in the Park. And so then when you kind of, you, you, you know, then you're just hopefully, if you're lucky going from job to job, I mean, there was long periods of unemployment, that's for sure. Um, but it, it also felt like you are you you start to, like in the in theater, certainly there's a real sense of community. And in New York City, once you're here, once you're living here and working here, you start to get to know people and people get to know you and you really start to feel like you're part of a community. Um, and, you know, it was it was a it was a struggle. I'll tell you that that's there is no there's no doubt about the struggle. Um, and credit cards were an amazing, amazing invention for me um, in the beginning. They send you checks that you can write, you can you can write numbers on, and then send it to your landlord, and then you keep staying in your apartment. It was incredible. Um, I do not recommend that for any young actor who's watching this. <laughs> do not write rent checks on credit card checks. At what point do you start feeling like this is now a career? that you might have a foothold in this business and maybe able to turn this into a long-term thing. Maybe now, maybe <laughs> around now, I think now I'm like, okay, in the fifth season of the billions, I feel like I've done, I feel like I have some sense of the fact that I could keep doing this. You know, I think, I think I'll be, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to cross my fingers, but I think I will hopefully be able to continue to do this. As a job. By the way, I feel like you're only half joking with that one. Like I do believe I am on, I'm I'm not really I'm I'm not really half joking. I'm being dead serious. <laughs> I mean, I think too for actors, you know, like that you live so long in an unstable way, so long. So that trusting stability, trusting like I actually know that I have this income, it's gonna last, I'm gonna be able to pay my bills. There's just it just doesn't really go away. When you when you start out, when you start out living that way living in an unstable way you just it's really hard to accept the fact that it might it might remain you know you always assume that i always assume that it was not going to remain i always assumed that i was going to be unemployed because you spend so much time being unemployed and it's just you live that way you live like a totally insecure lifestyle and you're just it that is the most natural place to be so living like trying to get security and feel like okay i actually have a pension and 
actually have some savings and I don't have so much credit card debt. And, um, that, that kind of natural fear doesn't, you, you've learned it. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's really hard to, for it to go away. It's fascinating you say that because as a 43-year-old middle-aged man myself and uh -huh. someone who transitioned out of the beautiful life and the beautiful career of being a financial advisor to move into the arts and to entertainment, I totally get what you're saying. And when I turned 40, it was such a tough period for me because you look around at all your friends, they have these stable careers, they've spent 20 years advancing through them, so they're now all uber successful. They, some of them have families and you're like Mr. Bachelor still. And it was an eye-opening experience. So I totally get where you're coming from. Were there ever moments where you felt that same way where you're like, what the fuck did I do with my life? Like, I should have just been an attorney? No, there wasn't. I was, I always knew that I was like a lifer. Like I was just going to be in it for my life. And I knew that from the beginning. And I, I mean, I felt very lucky about that. There are definitely times where the balance now, where you're like, this is the good stuff and the bad stuff and you're like you, you, they get closer and it gets closer in the beginning you know it's only all the bad stuff can't balance out how great it is and now the bad stuff you're like yeah this is coming it started just it doesn't feel so good some days um but but i i always i i, I do feel very lucky that i knew that this was what i was going to do and um you know i, I also have an obviously an uh a totally irrational sense of the odds of me succeeding in it because I was just like, gonna succeed, I'm gonna. Um, and people were like, are you? And I was like, I'm gonna, yeah, I am, I'm gonna succeed. Uh, and success didn't have to, wasn't necessarily monetarily. It was also just like, I want, I, I knew like, like I knew one of my life's goals was to be in a musical on Broadway and I achieved it. And I was like, that's an incredible, it's an incredible feeling and it was, I guess that was also one of the first times when I really felt like I belonged, like I belonged, like I had, what, what I had hoped for came true and that the community that I was working in and living in was something that I, I fit in. You know, so much of what an actor does is like figuring out what, where your puzzle piece fits, like how do you fit rather than coming in and being like, this is what the puzzle is going to be. You'd be like, okay, well, what's the puzzle? What's the puzzle that, that we're telling? What's the story that we're telling and how does my piece fit in and where does it fit in? What kind of, what sense of proportion and size and, um, you know, the, the, the hue of the, of the colors of, that you're gonna add to it. I mean, I'm speaking very esoterically, but I, I will tell you it, it is that, that is the, that's the job, that's the gig. And um, it wasn't really until, the, until I, had, I got that, that I felt like, okay, I think I can't, I think I can. I, I'm, I feel like this, this is, it's gonna work. It's gonna work because I felt like I, I belonged. Because of the visibility of billions, and obviously again, Breaking Bad was a monster, but this is really a showpiece for you because you're such a major character and you really get to show your chops. Yeah. Do you see a trajectory change? Do more offers start, start coming your way? More scripts get thrown at you? Now all of a sudden directors are like, David, I see you for this role. Does it change that type of trajectory? Do you have a script that you're pitching me that you're that you're interested in? That you're, that you're, is that where this is leading? After you've you got, have you've got a fantastic, offering, I'm literally going to end the Zoom, cancel everything, and literally just like hole up and start writing a script just for you because I'm taking that as an acceptance to my future offer. Yeah, fantastic, get in there. But do, does it change? Do you seem does it does it end up creating more I, opportunity? I feel like you know. 
I feel like most people, and uh, I will say for my own self, like the the desire the desire is that we all sort of look at our lives as a, as a like a staircase, but in fact, it's not a staircase. And everybody I know, everyone I know, all of the the most famous friends of mine don't have don't have that kind of strange don't have that sort of natural progression where it just goes up and up and up and you sort of like keep getting this it's just a weird up and down thing and there's serendipity happens like sometimes sometimes there are those scripts that come along and you know it fits and fits with your time and it fits in terms of who's going to be doing what and and your desire to work on the material um and maybe that will be true i mean you know right now because um you know, there is, I don't have any time to do that. There's no, there's no other, th there's nothing else that I'm doing. I mean, we will, you know, in between seasons we have taken, um, there has been some time so that you could actually try to fit something into your schedule. And if, and when billions ends in season 15, you know, um, that, that, that may be, that may be a time when, when they really start rolling in, um, but we'll see. We'll see. Maybe this. Maybe this will be. Maybe this. Maybe this interview will be the entree where people will be like, you know what? Hold on. That they're going to be like. Guy. They're going to be like, you know what? It's not because of billions. I saw you on Endless exactly. Hustle, David, exactly. and I want to give you your own Star Wars movie. Here's, here it is. Here it is. Finally. Exactly. Finally, J.J. Abrams will finally be watching it and be like, oh, what was I thinking? He'll be like, D David, I saw you on Endless Hustle. On. You're exactly. it. Exactly. Spielberg will finally be like, hold on, you have been in two of my movies, but wait a second, I just saw this podcast you were on. And now I envision it, I finally see the role. Seen it until then. So David, one of the main reasons that I started this show was to talk to successful people about the habits and the mentality that helped them form their success. Okay. My question to you is, as we close, what are some of the habits that you incorporate into your daily life that help you continue to elevate? I think for a long time, I was a teacher. I taught, um, I taught in the grad school that I went to and taught this class called Shakespeare's Clowns, which who doesn't love that, right? Who doesn't want to take that class? Um, no one. Uh, and I think one of, the, one of the things that I preached to my students and that I really, I, I want to practice and I, I try to practice. It is a very challenging thing to practice right now because of COVID. Um, but you, but you, the, that you have to search for joy, right? The, the, that the, the mining in yourself and the world around you and the world in which you live <clears throat> you have to constantly seek joy because joy and joy can be small things and joy can be much larger things, but joy is something that happens to you. It's not something that you, it's not about liking something or enjoying something or being attracted to something, but it's something that, that comes, comes to you. And on some level, it is like a, a mystical aspect on some level it is personal and, and, but it is something that if you're able to if you're able to constantly be in contact with it you will never be dissatisfied with where you are and you know i, I feel like it's so essential to all of us to be able to 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 live in that um in an in 
in I'm an I'm an optimistic misanthrope or a misanthropic optimist, and um, but I will say that even through my misanthropy, there there my my optimism always wins, and the thing that the thing that 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 allows that to be true is that I I want to find joy. I want to find it in myself and in the world around me. So something like for me. I love the New York Times. I love that it's my hometown newspaper. I love physically having it in my hand. I love riding the subway and reading it. I love taking it to an audition and having it be my shield and know that there's somewhere in the world that somebody has dedicated their life to writing about that I've never been and may never go to, but I'm still finding out things about it. And it's great writing and it's really interesting. It's great editing and people spend all of this time and I can have it in my hand. And so even if I go to an audition and I'm disappointed by the fact that I auditioned poorly or that they didn't take me and, and I didn't get the gig, I'm still feeling like I am, I, I am part of the world and I am interested in ideas and this, and this physical thing that comes to my doorstep just by me paying a small amount of money every month is incredible. So that's like a, a very small thing in my life that I have found that does in fact actually physically bring me joy. It happens all the time. And, and I think there are wider, I think there are wider and bigger places that you can look for that um, in terms of the work that you're doing, what you're endeavoring to create. Uh, but I think that it also has to be personal. A per, your own, a personal sense of joy is, is something that no one can take from you. I don't want to change it in you and I don't want you to change it for yourself. Um, but if it actually is a wellspring, if it just keeps happening to you, then you know you're on the right path. Without it, I think you're, it's too, it's too hard. You get distracted by too many things that you think you like or you think you want, you think you should acquire. And you're like, it's not what it, it's not what it is. It's not the thing. That was wonderful. You are a true actor's actor, David. Congratulations, season five of Billions. You were brilliant as Wags. Thank this was fabulous. Thank you for a wonderful chat. I'm I a hope huge to see fan. you somewhere in the world. Yeah, hopefully we'll run into each other. Thanks for a wonderful chat, David. Right. Take care. Take Bye. care, man. All right, folks, that was, of course, David Costable. Make sure to see Wags and the rest of the Billions crew. They're back Sundays on Showtime. Finally, our last guest of the episode, last but not least, because this dude had me in tears. I mean, honestly, one of the funniest dudes in show business. You cannot help but just not be engaged and hysterically laugh when you're in Burke Kreischer's presence. Busy as hell, too. He's got the Birdie Boy Tour again, Red Rocks, September 8th. If you can get tickets, get them. If not, catch them somewhere in the country because he's going to have you pissing your pants. His podcast, Birdcast, as well as Two Bear, One Cave with Tom Segura. And of course, the Go Big Show and When the Machine Comes Out, which we talk all about, and you guys are going to be in tears listening to this, getting to work with Luke Skywalker, Mark Hamill. Fucking awesome. Here he is, the hilarious Burt Kreischer. All right, we've got a hilarious day on The Endless Hustle as I'm joined by one of the funniest guys in show business, but he can't get his shit together and actually log in under his own account. So what am I going to do with you, Burke Kreischer? Come on, you're better than that. Dude, I'm a mess. I Look, I have, I just got a new phone. I have both phones 
because I can't get rid of the old one. I'm, I'm too like, I'm, I'm afraid I'll miss a call from someone important and it's not. It's just my phone number got doxxed. And so now I have thousands of texts from people going, is this really Bert? Is this really Bert? And FaceTime, some aggressive FaceTimer. Like I FaceTime, I like to FaceTime people instead of just call them, which apparently is not cool. Because like I FaceTime Snoop the other day and he just was like, send a voicemail. But, uh, and so I get FaceTimes all the time from fans just going like, oh shit, it's you. And then you get the, the crazy ones. And they always, a FaceTime always turns good because they're always with their boys or they just had a baby or they're at dinner with their friends. So yeah, so I'm bad with technology. By the way, the best part of that story is you just humble bragging that you can FaceTime Snoop at any time. I fucking love that. Dude, I love, the last time I talked to Snoop, we were doing Two Bears, One Cave, me and Segura. And I called him because we were going fishing with Warren Sapp. And I was like, see if Snoop wants to go. And he answers the phone and it's, it's, just, it's black. You don't see anything. And he's like, I go, Snoop, 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 Calvin. And he goes, who's this? And I went, Bert, and he goes, you're a bad motherfucker, Bert Kreischer. <laughs> I was like, done. I'm never calling that guy again. That's a good one to end on. <laughs> the, the only thing better would have been if you could have somehow recorded that screen, grabbed it, and that literally would have been your voicemail. Send the voicemail. You're a bad motherfucker, Bert Kreischer. <laughs> bad motherfucker, Bert Kreischer. Beep, leave a message. <laughs> you're a bad motherfucker, Bert Kreischer. So, by the way, we already plugged one of the things we got to plug. You got that podcast with Segura. So I love that we got that plug out of the way because it's fucking hilarious. You're, you're also going back out on tour. You're starting with oh. Red Rocks. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, Red Rocks, September 8th. It's funny. I'm such a, I, I'm such a promo guy that I have them stuck in my head. I have dates burned in my head that are important to me where I go Tallahassee, October 24th. Like certain things so that if anything happens, like I was talking to Rosaria Dawson the other day and she was telling me something about uh, about a. Uh, Star Wars, the the thing, the Mandalorian thing she's doing. And I so bad, I just, in the middle, I just cut her off and I go, Red Rock, September 8th, I'll see you guys there. <laughs> I went in, I was going into surgery. I went into surgery and I told my, I told my anesthesiologist, I go, just so you know, I'm doing a promo for Red Rocks as I go into surgery. And he was like, well, he was like, I go, Jimmy Buff is playing the night before and the night after. And he goes, that's something I might fly out for. And I go, yeah, you want to keep me alive a little more now, don't you? By the way, when did you become so Hollywood? We've gotten Snoop name drops. We've gotten yeah. Rosario Mandalorian name drops. <laughs> who's, ne who's next on the Burr Kreischer name drop list? Oh, hold on. Joe Rogan's calling me. <laughs> Dude, you're fucking awesome. So I got to tell you, I read that Rolling Stone interview and article years ago. I end up rereading it because I knew you were coming on the show. I'm like, let me reread this shit because for those who don't know, National Lampoon's Van Wilder is based off of Burt Kreischer and this famous Rolling Stone article that came out. I read this shit. I'm like, I forgot this shit. And then all of a sudden you're talking about being a stand-up comic in it. Here you are today. You got a TV show. You're playing Red Rocks. You got a, multiple successful podcasts. You got a show on like TBS. I mean... Can you believe it? Think back to that kid in that article to now a doper Kreischer. Pretty crazy. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what's really crazy about all of this is we were just in Serbia for three months shooting a movie called The Machine. And I walked out, I, the, our first day of, I guess called principal photography or whatever. I look at the date and I remember I go, wow, this is the date. 
oddly enough, it's just a, it's, it's a me. Uh, it's the date that the Rolling Stone magazine came out. It is also the date when I went to Russia for the first time. I go, it's the, and, it, and, and it just happens to be the date that I started at FSU. Like all those things all started at, at the same time. And I go, holy shit, man, this is like a good week in my life. Like, and then I'm, and then I'm sitting there, you know, driving out in, in a Sprinter van in Serbia to go start shooting a movie about, about my experience robbing a train in Russia. And I'm just going, this is fucking surreal, man. Like this, this doesn't, I can't believe this is the journey from that article to there. I go, it's almost like full circle. Like, I think I'm done. I think, I, I think now is when you die in a plane crash. You're like, no, no, he led a good life. Like no one at my funeral is going to be like, I don't know. He was taken from us so early. <laughs> Everyone's going to be like, I can't believe he did it. So let me drop your next name drop. The guy you're filming the machine with is, you know, just Luke fucking Skywalker, Mark Hamill. Yeah. So funny story about the machine. I was dating a Russian girl earlier this year. I don't know how your name came up. Came up. We're at the Spaniard in the West Village in New York. She goes, Burke Kreischer is my famous, my, Burke Kreischer is my favorite comedian. She goes, have you ever seen the machine? And I was like, no, but I've had him in studio before, but I didn't know about this machine thing. Hit YouTube that night. The next 13 minutes of my life, I'm in fucking tears watching the machine because I'm Russian as well. And I'm like, oh my God, fast forward, like a week later, I'm reading Variety, Burt Kreischer, new movie, The Machine with Mark Hamill. I'm like, this shit is crazy. I mean, how crazy is it? So for those who don't know, Burt literally with Russian mobsters robbed a train for real. That's yeah. crazy. It really is insane, especially when you think, you know, you know, it's funny because they're, the reason the story went viral is because uh, one of the girls in my class saw that Facebook post the day it went up, day it went up and just left a comment, just like a comment, like anyone else would just left a comment. And she was like, uh, I was in Bert's Russian class. I was on this trip to Russia with Bert. This story is a hundred percent true. He fucking robbed us. And it went viral. It went viral. And I, by the way, I thought I was going to get canceled. I was like, I was like, uh Oh, everyone's going to find out. I really robbed. Like, I thought everyone just thought it was a good story. Maybe I made it up. When they found out it was real, that's when it took off. And uh, and yeah, and then we ended up doing the movie and Mark Hamill, uh, Mark Hamill came into the conversation and I was like, I definitely want to meet Mark Hamill, like, fuck yeah. And so we did a Zoom, cause you know, we're still in quarantine kinda. We do a Zoom with Mark Hamill and, and the first thing he says is, why, why do you do stand up with your shirt off? And I was like, well, oh, you're the perfect guy to play my dad. I was like, this is my dad. And, and it was a dream come true. I mean, there's times where you don't even realize like, you're, you're acting with Luke Skywalker. Like you're, you know, like, but, and you forget, I forget because Star Wars is such a different, I mean, it's such an, a, a world, it's such a different thing, but I forget just what an amazing, talented actor he is. You know, like, I think a lot of people kind of sleep on the fact that he is a fucking amazing actor, you know? And, and we have scenes where all, like we had a scene in this moment where he's giving me this monologue and, he grabs out of my face and I started crying and, 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 and I was, and it's just so moving. And I, and I go, we get done. And they're like, that was great. And I go, did you get my tears? And they go, no, the camera's not on you. And I was like, well, when the camera's on me, can you tell them to do that thing he did again? And Mark goes, you mean act? And I went, yeah, can you do that acting thing again? Cause you're really good at it. And he was like, yeah, I know. And then he does it again. The camera's not even on him, gives it to me, grabs my face. And I start bawling, crying. And I'm like, I love you, dad. I was like, ah, it was the greatest. He's the, he's the best man. I love Mark. 
There's so much I want to unpack. First of all, how does the movie come about? So obviously the machine, the whole skit, the story goes viral, but how does it actually go from that to, hey, let's make a movie with Luke Skywalker? Um, so it's kind of interesting. We pitched the machine, you know, the machine goes viral. We went and took it a bunch of places. And then we start, you know, then you do the Netflix special, you start selling tickets and then you pitch it a couple places and everywhere was kind of like, I don't think they really got the concept of the movie or, or I wasn't pitching it right. The pitch I had just didn't, didn't work. And cause I think everyone's note was I've heard the story. What, what, what's the new part of it? And I had a bunch of stuff that I don't, don't share in the story that really happened in Russia. They were like, ah, I don't know. And so then I came up, we were still getting meetings. So I just came up with three other pitches and I stopped pitching the machine altogether. And we're pitching these three other movies that would, I still think are really good movies. And so we go to Legendary, this guy, Kale, who I'd met before and partied with and uh, knew him vaguely, but like I partied with him once in at, at Flappers. And uh, he goes, uh, uh, he was like, okay, we pitched the three movies. He was like, I like them. I like them. I want to do a movie with you. I want to do a movie with you. What movie do you want to do? He goes, okay, let's say Hollywood says you get to make one movie. What's it going to be? And I said, well, it's, it's going to be the machine. And he goes, okay, all right. And he goes, I know the story. And he goes, uh, what's the pitch? And, I'm, and I, by the way, I gave up pitching this idea. And I was like, I got to be honest with you, man. I'm not even certain I want to do that movie because I'm afraid the, if the movie is good, that one night I'll get called to do a corporate gig and I'll show up and it'll be the Russian mafia and they'll kidnap me. And he just looks at me and he goes, sold. And I went, what? And he goes, that's our movie, sold. And I go, what do you mean? And he goes, this movie is a little bit of The Hangover, a little bit, little bit of Godfather 2, and a little bit of Romance in the Stone. And we were like, or, oh no, not Romance, really, Midnight Run, Midnight Run. And I go, okay. And, it, and, it, and then that was the, that's how we sold it. And then we get, you know, the first outline kind of beat it out. And it was me and my dad get kidnapped by the Russian mafia. And I've got to pay my debt to the, to the, I've got to fix the wrongs I did in my youth and correct them. And, it, and I loved it. I loved the arc of it. I loved all of it. And you know, when, when scripts come in, people are like, I don't know. And I'm not, and I just, the second I got it, I was like, this is, we're making this movie. And sure enough, we got a call and they're like, yo, we've been greenlit. Let's, let's cast it. And we, we did a table read and it killed. And then we did, uh, we did another run round of punch-ups with a bunch of writers and it got better. And then we got it to Mark Hamill. And he, as soon as he signed on, we're like, oh shit, we're going to fucking Serbia. Like we're going to Serbia for three months. And it was one of the greatest experiences of my, it, it was singularly the greatest experience of my entire entertainment career. Without a doubt, I will never enjoy a, pro, a process more. And I never thought I wanted to act ever. And I immediately signed on for like two more movies and, uh, and and try and now I'm trying to do a movie t tentatively. Me and Segura doing a movie, and so like I'm just I'm like uh, I'm like I love it. I really really loved it, and I never thought I'd love it. By the way, was Hamill ready for you? I mean, you're a lot. No, no, no. My wife told me she goes, listen, you cast a large wake, so like so like monitor your drinking on the because we, we took a private jet to Serbia. She's like, you don't want to freak this guy out and and have him watch you drink the way you drink. It's like he might, it might scare him. So I packed a little bunch of little tiny whiskeys. So I wasn't ordering drinks from this flight attendant so I could make my own and no one knew what I was drinking. Um, and then, and then my wife was like, also, you know, he doesn't need to be your best friend. I know you want to be best friends with Luke Skywalker, but he doesn't need to be your best friend. Give him space. He's a grown man. He may not want to like hang out every day. And cause that's who I am. I want to hang out every day. I want to be with you every day. I need this. I, I want everyone to be a family. 
and uh, and I did that. And I think we, I mean, I know for a fact we became friends. I joke about it a lot and say I doubt we'll ever talk again because because that's just so so Mark. You know, like you're not like he's he'll he'll quite it's 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 funny. I told him I said uh, I said hey Mark, do you think we're gonna like spend a lot? Of, and he just cut me off. He goes, nope. <laughs> He's a homebody. He likes being with his family, likes being with his dogs, loves, I mean, like he likes what he likes, you know, but uh, we had a great, we had a great time in Serbia, me, him, his daughter and his wife. And uh, I, I spent a lot of time with his daughter and his wife. They came over to the house a lot and, uh, and they're just the best. They're ultimate. Yeah. He's like, Burke, please don't call me. I speak to the likes of Harrison Ford and George Lucas, not yeah. Burke Reicher. <laughs> he would look at me and just go, like just, I just, I just don't get it. I don't get it. Like there's so much of my personality that I don't realize. You don't realize how you how you're perceived by people until you meet new people and you hear stuff like he's unpredictable, he's uh, he's chaotic, he's loud, and you're like, wait, is that not charming to you? And they're like, well, it's a little off-putting at times. How does Van Wilder happen? So obviously, the Rolling Stone article, it, it's rereading it first of all you can't write that shit anymore i mean it's like it's from a world past i mean now it feels like three generations ago but then how does the movie actually happen off of that article well i i had nothing to do with the movie so i it's all you know i i didn't write it i didn't produce it i didn't do anything what happened was and this is all you know secondhand from people that have that have all been involved with the movie but uh what happened was, you know, the day it came out, we, we had, I had Oliver Stone an option the rights to my life when his company, when I was in college, uh, they optioned that article. And so it, they wanted to do a movie about a journalist because the journalist wrote the article. So he, had, and so they write the art, they, they get the option. We work on it for a year. And then I signed a deal with Will Smith to make a sitcom and and then agents get involved. And then this, this free option that I have with Oliver Stone kind of disappears, but they'd already commissioned people to write scripts. And so it kind of fizzles out. So all these dudes have their own scripts that they've written about a journalist and a party animal. This is all what I've been told, by the way, I'm no, like no, no official, you're not getting any official news. And so, but I've been, I told it by National Lampoon. So uh, one of the guys takes his script, takes it to National Lampoon, changes my name, keeps my friend's names in it. And, uh, and sells it and they're like, all right, great, let's do it. And so then that's how that movie happened. And then that movie comes out and my agents and my managers at the time uh, get on the phone and they do a big conference call and they're like, hey, uh, your movie, they, the movie that you, were, that you were developing, that script is sold and it's made and it's coming out next week and we wanna sue them. We wanna sue National Lampoon. And at the time, I remember, I remember where I was, I was on Venice by the Starbucks over by the Coles and, uh, and over near Sony. And I, I remember saying like, yeah, I, I could use money. Like let's sue. And my man, my manager, Barry Katz hops on the phone very wisely. And he goes, all right, let me ask you a question. There's two types of people in this business. He goes, people that work and people that sue, which one do you want to be? And I was already working. So I was like, I want to be the working guy. And he goes, Hey, you don't create enemies in this business. It's hard to get a movie made. You had nothing to do with it. Fucking let it go. And I went, you're right. I, I didn't feel that way at the time. I was like, well, whatever. And then uh, and then I went to come cut to like randomly. And this is like one of those times where once again, full circle, I take a general meeting at an art, an, an art house, like an, it literally is like a gallery, an art gallery. 
And these two guys are sitting at the table and they're like, Hey man, we want to make a sitcom with you. And I was like, cool. And they're like, uh, they have my book on the table and they're like, um, they're like, we're big fans. And I was like, awesome. And they're a really big company. And I'm like, that's great. And they're like, uh, you know, one of our partners couldn't be here today, but he, you know, but, but, uh, you know, we've been fans of yours for a long time. And I was like, great. And they're like, we produced Van Wilder. And I was like, oh, shut up. And they're like, yeah, you know, like, we want to know, like, we know that character. We know you. We want to do something with you. And so we started developing a, a sitcom, me and this company. And I, I, by the way, my memory is horrible, but I'm, not, I'm almost 100% certain it's Ryan Reynolds' company. So, like, a Dark Horse or something or something like, anyway, that we sit and developed. And it didn't go anywhere. But, the, you know, that advice I got given about two types of people, people... I would have shot myself in the foot with it, with the biggest movie star in the world had I been the kind of guy that goes in and starts suing people at 26 years old. And so, and now I look at it and I look at that whole that whole journey I've had, and I go, oh, it's so nice to know that 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 Van Wilder trivia fact is a footnote in my life as opposed to my tentpole. My tentpole is my career, my stand up, my working on Travel Channel, my my specials, the cabin, now this movie, the go big show, all the stuff I've done, my podcasts, my cooking show, all that is my story. And then the the Van Wilder stuff's kind of like a interesting sidebar that that I I mean, and and trust me, you know, getting work as a young fucking comic was hard as shit back then. You didn't have all the avenues we have now to have a podcast, create your own content, put it out there, find your own fan base. Like I would have been known as that dude for my whole fucking life and cool with it by the way and just never worked on my talent never worked on stand-up never done anything i just would have been like that's my story and i've been like go out go to bars like the like the real world kids and party with people but so thank god thank god nothing happened to that have you ever spoken to reynolds has he ever come up and been like no but like we have we have a million close friends that are similar like we have I, i'm shocked that i haven't but I also, I would, in all honesty, like, I would never want to meet him as, like, this is the guy that Van Wilder was based off of. Because, like, I'm not that guy. I'm really not that guy. Like, that guy, whoever wrote that script, that's his script. I had nothing to do with it. I had nothing to do with it. And, by the way, I actually think I'm a little more fucking interesting, to be dead honest with you. Dude, when I read that article, I, I legit was like, why didn't they make this movie? This was the movie that I wanted to watch. This kid who's literally, like... It was like, it was like, it was Belushi. It was Animal House. I'm like, yeah. that's the movie I wish I would have seen. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, like, I think about that sometimes, you know, in developing that script with whatever, you know, whoever we were developing with at the time. Um, my stories, I don't think were like, I was like, what I did was not, like, I don't think it was like movie friendly. Now that I've made a movie, I know that like all these stories that I've had in my head are like, Sometimes they're like, yeah, that doesn't translate to film the way you think it does, Bert. So, but yeah, I, uh, I, 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 hopefully I'll meet Ryan Reynolds one day and then, and hopefully it won't come up and hopefully he'll be like, dude, you're funny as shit. And then, and then me and him nine months later, will be sitting at a beach in Mexico, having become best friends and he'll pass me a joint. He's like, do you smoke pot in college? And I'll be like, oh yeah, you want to know an interesting story. And he'll be like, what's that? You know that movie Van Wilder? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, why? I go, never mind. <laughs> You're such a better man than I am. I would be like, so, Ryan, how does it feel knowing you owe me I, you owe me your career? 
By the way, the movie didn't even do well for the record. The movie, it's a cult classic, but like it, it was, I don't think he would like look fondly in that movie when it came out, but uh, yeah, but he's yeah, like no, Deadpool I, I, now. He's like, get that off my IMDb. I'm Deadpool. I'm free guy. I don't, I don't know that shit. Fucking greatest. He is the greatest comedic action star out there. He is like everything. I fucking love that guy. I love that guy. I told, I said, I've never even seen the movie Van Wilder, so I have never even seen it. And I said, so, and that company, I think it's his company. It's like, I think that's the name of the company. Um, they, I, I mean, I'm, I'm almost 100% certain, but I just hate saying things that I, I don't kind of remember. But they, <laughs> the they, aggregators come in and they're like, Burke Kreischer, making shit up. <laughs> yeah. And so they said to me, they were like, hey, uh, have you ever seen the movie? And I said, no. And they're like, uh, would you watch it? And I said, I'd watch it with Brian Reynolds on my podcast. And they were like, we could make that happen. And I was like, oh, I'll do that in a fucking heartbeat. I would love that. But yeah, I'd like to be, I'd like Ryan Reynolds to meet me now, as opposed to think, oh, that's who the fuck you are. Yeah, because you're actually like successful now. That's the crazy yeah. thing is you've hustled your way into uh, like an A-list comedic career. It's I, I was actually, you, you're dropping all this year. Like, I, I mean, you and Burr, you have the Segura podcast. You have your tours sell out. You've had God knows how many specials. I'm like, I'm looking at your shit today and I'm like, Fucking Chrysler has actually built a hell of a career for himself. It's pretty solid. Yeah, and I, I, that's the part that I'm proud of is like I feel like you know, I, you know, I busted my ass and I and even stuff like you know my time at Travel Channel, I learned so much. It was like going to like getting your getting like a doctorate degree in hosting and 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 being funny without trying to be funny and and being in the moment. And then now I'm doing Go Big Show. I'm we're down to making shooting it, and I'm like, I'm like I'm very comfortable on camera. And I got that from Travel Channel, even my promos that I used to sell out my tours, you know, that's all based off of Travel Channel, allowing me to learn how to shoot, edit, post. And so like, you know, I, it, it, it all kind of builds into a career. And I think, I think that's why I feel bummed for guys who like blow up at like 30 or 28. Cause I go, oh, you didn't learn, you didn't learn how to do it. Your, this sounds shitty, but like not, there's a lot of guys that learned how to do it themselves. They're like the way the internet is, there's a lot of guys, but when it comes to comics, who just, you know, get a, get a pop, get thrown on a sitcom, get put in a movie. I go, oh, you didn't, I, I, I feel like you didn't get to the feel. I was sitting with Adam Devine. This is a good example because he's a friend of mine. I was sitting with Adam Devine. Name, and another like, name drop, my man. I love it. I want to do, when we cut this, I want to do like a whole compilation of Burke Kreischer name drops. Yeah, no. Yeah, please. <laughs> By the way, I'm, I'm, I'm the worst. But I was sitting with Adam Devine. We were in Tacoma and he was playing a theater. He was doing like 3,000 seats. And I had sold out the weekend at a club. And he said, hey, man, congrats, you're blowing up. And I, and I, it's so funny. I, I couldn't, I, I still won't be able to verbalize it, but I, I was able to accept his congratulations because I knew how hard I had worked to sell out a club for a weekend. Like I knew the work it had gone in for me to sell out tickets. And he was doing a theater and I knew that it wasn't a backhanded compliment. Like I, even if it was just in passing, like congrats on selling out the club. And, you know, I don't, and I know Adam, I don't think he was like, but I'm doing theaters, but, but the way he said it was like, congrats. And I actually took the compliment and I went, thank you. Like it's, it's, you know, so many times people congratulate you or, or on stuff that you had nothing to do with. Like I was in, I was in some magazine and people were like, Hey, congrats. And you're like, yeah, well, I didn't really, I don't know if I had anything to do with that. And, but when you work for something and you get it and someone congratulates you, you're like, you're able to go, Hey, thanks. Like when people go, Hey man, I love your podcast. I go, Hey, thank you. Cause I busted my ass on that. 
podcast. So that thank you is it lands somewhere, you know, like, uh, and, and by the way, I've been doing this podcast for like eight years, nine years. I put it up every week. I've done it the first three years I did by myself editing and post. I mean, like it's, you know, I, I can accept that. Thank you. That compliment. Where does the shirt off thing begin? When do you start taking your shirt off and incorporate it as part of your act? I started um, in it. It started that I rip my shirt off, kill a beer, and then put it back on. And then I was I would do that because it would cheer me up. It would make me laugh. Like, like you're just ripping it off and make me laugh. And uh, and then and then I did it in Columbus, Ohio once. And there was this dude I was working with that I really respected. And uh, and he, I took it off. And I, and something happened in the room. And I just kind of focused on that thing. And then all of a sudden it was like you know. 20 minutes had gone by and my shirt was still off. And I was like, oh shit, my shirt's still off. And I went to put it back on and this woman in the back just goes, keep it off. And I kept it off. I did the whole show shirtless and, and I got done and it was like a really, really good show. And this guy was, looked at me and was like, uh, hey amen. just so you know, I couldn't do one joke shirtless, let alone a whole show shirtless. And he was like, that was really, that was really crazy to watch. And I was like, oh, so I did the next show. I ripped it off. And I just thought, I kept it on the mic stand. And I thought, let's see how far I can go before I put it back on. You know, like, see, let's see. And I did the whole show again shirtless. And that, from that moment on, and that was probably, it was, it was before I started telling the machines, probably like 10 years ago, I guess. Uh, I, I've been doing it ever since. And, 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 and then it got to the point where I was like, I did the Showtime special. And they're like, hey, you gonna want to wear a shirt? And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I haven't done stand up with a shirt on in like, fucking forever and, th and they're like well yeah but i think you're giving people a, ch a reason to change a channel and i was like yeah but i, I don't I, I what what's worse me being uncomfortable being like this the whole time or just doing stand-up the way i do it so i did it with my shirt off and they were right no one watched that special no one watched that special it was like the least watched special showtime had ever put on but but the machine was in that special and i posted the machine to Facebook and I was shirtless and I just like those it's just a random confluence of events and the story goes viral I'm shirtless and it's just very identifiable you, you're the guy that performs on a shirt and it was like it was like marketing branding 101 and uh and what's what's interesting is I stood by that special I was like this is a good fucking special it's a good the machine is like I think Secret Time's probably, in my opinion, Secret Time's my best special. Hey, Big Boy's better, but I think I, hey, Big Boy's more people have seen, way more people have seen. I think Secret Time's my best, but I stand by the machine that that's a really good special. And they put it, Netflix bought it, put it on, and it's always in the top 10 in Netflix. Now you're doing obviously network TV, but a big part of your persona is just being Burt Kreischer and being off the cuff. How hard is it to contain that end of you because you've got to be family friendly for national TV. It's not that hard. I, oddly enough, I, I, you know, I kind of just keep do, doing my own thing and then let them edit around it, you know, like, and I, I, it's, I, I think things have changed too. You know, now that people are exposed to so much media and so much content, I think people are a little less shocked at like things people could say than they would have been maybe like, five years ago or 10 years ago. So uh, it hasn't been that hard. I, my hardest thing is not on the show itself. It's like interviews like this where I don't think 
about what I'm saying. And I, or, you know, or doing two bears, one cave. And all of a sudden this porn star wants to have sex with me and Tom. And I am in the moment and I'm like, what if we get dildos? What if we have sex with a strap on dildos? And he's like, let's call our wives. And then we call our wives. And then you're like, oh shit. Is the, my movie producers or my, my, my movie studio going to be comfortable with this? concept and if she and if my wife says i can fuck her with a dildo on with tom is i'm gonna do that do that and then how's that gonna affect tbs how's that like so it's a lot of it's like you know laying in bed going jesus christ what did i say or what did i offer up i mean i remember one time tom and i went to a dominatrix for a live show and we got our dicks tethered together with electric cords and she shocked our dicks together to see who could take the most pain this dominatrix and i remember halfway through i was like wonder if TBS is going to be comfortable with this. <laughs> and then you just like, like, well, I guess it's out there. I fucking, I did it. You know, like, I get, you know, if you lose a TV show, you lose a TV show. I mean, have you ever gotten that call? Obviously not from TBS because they have you in making Georgia filming, yeah. but have you yeah. gotten that call with like, Bert, what the fuck were you thinking? Yeah. And by the way, it's never for the thing you think of. It's never, it's always like, it, for me, the num, it, for me, it's Instagram. So like, they'll be like I, a number of times I've gotten like a, Hey, what the fuck are you putting on your Instagram? You gotta take that off right now. And you're like, Oh, sorry. I wasn't thinking. Or like, like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. Did you, what did you No, No, okay, okay. like, and it's always a network or a studio going like, going like, going like, Hey, fucking no more Instagram. Okay. You're off Instagram. Like you're, you're, you're because it's, it's, it, because it, it's the business side. Like I, and I, like right now it's when I should shut my mouth, but it's like the business side. So hypothetically say, let's, let's put it this way. Say, say I ran a restaurant, say, no, better yet. Say I cook at a restaurant, right? And I, and someone else owns that restaurant and I'm the head cook and I'm in the back of my Instagram going, we got shellfish, we got shellfish, everybody. And we got a deal. The guy said to us, you know, they'd be like, well, what are you doing? Just, just serve the fucking shellfish. We got the shellfish. Just make the fucking shellfish. There's no reason you need to tell them where we got it or how old that shellfish is or that we got a discount. Just sell the fucking shellfish. So that's where it, it happens mostly to me. That's fucking hilarious. I yeah. can't. I still can't believe the success you've had, man. I fucking love it. Like rereading that article, I'm just sitting there and I'm like, what a fucking journey this guy. What comes to your mind when you kind of just reflect on the journey you've gone through? Um, I, you know, it's, it's funny. I don't like, I feel like, um, I always wonder, I, I wonder if like George Clooney can sit back and go like, I fucking made it, you know? Cause I don't feel like that ever. I feel like everything's going away. I feel like I'm not, I'm not working hard enough. I feel like I'm not coming up with new ideas. Like I sit, especially when I'm in production like this, I get really bummed out. I was like that during the movie, I, I get bummed out. So I hear my buddies on podcasts, just fucking killing it. Like Theo Vaughn, Tim Dillon, Andrew Schultz. Uh, Giannis Pappas, Chris Stefano, all these guys are killing it. Nate Bargatze, and or or they're doing big shows like Sebastian and 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 Bill, and all these guys are doing big shows. And then you're in production, and I start getting like like antsy, going, "Come on, man, I gotta make something. I I gotta like create something." And then my wife's like, "You hang on, you have a movie coming out. You're shooting a TV show. You have a sold out tour. You just sold out Red Rocks. Like, just chill the fuck out and try to enjoy it." And I go, "I don't." I, I think successful people can't, you know, I think truly successful people cannot enjoy success and they go, I need to work harder. 
Dude, it's the gift of the, and the gift and the curse of the artist, man. That's what I call it. It's, I feel the same way. If I'm not, I could have the best week on earth and I'm like, how the fuck did I fuck up this week? That's literally what goes through my mind. I didn't do enough. It's yeah. always how I feel. It's insatiable. It's fucking awful. It's insatiable. And I, and I, and, and it's fun. It's fun when you meet other people with that insatiability where they're just like, where they can't turn it off either. You know, it's fun working with those people where all they do is think about what the thing you're working on. And you're like, like my, my, like both, I'm very, very lucky in that at this part of my career of working with people that are fucking amazing. Like my executive Kale over at Legendary, I spent every single day with him and all we did was talk about the script. Peter Atencio is our director. All he did was think about this goddamn movie. You could not talk about this movie enough. And that's all I wanted to talk about. That's all I wanted to talk about. It was like, how do we make it better? How do we do this? How do we do that? My wife's not one of those people. She's like, Jesus, let it go. Let's talk about something else. And I was like, oh no, that's not, you got the wrong guy, you know? And my, my executive here, Conrad, me and him go up to his room every night, bottle of wine, and we just talk about the show, talk about the acts, talk about the, you know, and, and how do we make it better? How do we streamline it? What are we looking for? Like, I love, I'm, and, and dude, Segura, I, I, all I do is Segura, we talk, we talk numbers, we talk, uh, we talk bits, we talk uh, future, we talk, we're, right now we're, we're trying to figure out a, a live show we can do when I get back. We think we should do a live sh show. Like we just, it's business, you know, even with Rogan, you know, it's. Yeah, I was going to actually ask you about Rogan as a podcaster yourself. What do you think about the Rogan experience, a hundred million dollar deal, how he pisses everybody fucking off every day. What do you think about the Rogan explosion? I, uh, I, I love it. I mean, I, first of all, I have to say I'm a huge fan of his podcast. I am since day one. And when I say day one, I'm talking snowflakes on the screen. I've been a fan of his podcast. He changed my life immeasurably just as a friend just as a friend and as a man who came to me at a time when i couldn't uh, I, I didn't trust people and didn't want to have friends and i was like done with friends i had a family that was my thing he came to me with a shot of uh, a shot of jack and a, and a heineken and was like hey man i'm trying to be your friend like you need to have friends and me and tom and ari and joey and duncan we're all trying to be your friend so let us be your friend i mean that, that dude that doesn't happen so you will never hear a bad word out of my mouth about him ever in my entire fucking life. I think he's killing it. I love that he speaks with his fucking mind. I look, I don't agree with Joe all the time, but I, and, but, and, and by the way, I also know that Joe that giggles and gets high and talks about what if you threw fish 10 feet in the air and they started flying, how many fish do you think we'd have left on this earth? Like that's the Joe I know. Right. So, and he, and by the way, and he's also a huge resource when you have him as a friend and you can go, Hey man, uh, what do you know about, uh, hyperbaric chambers and he was like great therapy great oxygen therapy just uh here's what i think you need to do burks i'm getting me and segura both getting over surgeries and so he's great and i and i think he's i think he changed the game in media i think he changed the landscape of media he showed us just how kind of full of shit fox and cnn are and that they're all fucking driven to it's it's just it's all you know it's like i mean little things he says on his podcast that i just go it'll change and i'm like yeah wait yeah wait so if, Tom, if don lemon signs like a 15 million dollar contract does that mean that he's got to have the most sensational news out there and and then how married is he to delivering like it's just little things where i go whoa yeah now obviously you know i don't agree with him on everything but uh but i think he's killing it man i think he's killing it and i I wish we had more of him. Tim Dillon's a perfect example. Tim Dillon's killing it, doing his own thing. Does not say, I, I don't agree with probably 80% of what Tim says, but 100% of it makes me laugh my fucking ass off. And I love it. And I love it. And he's doing it his own way. And he's fucking killing it, man. I, I, anyone doing something different, I, I, I appreciate
before I let you go. So Damon Wayans was on some radio show like in Dallas or something. And he brought up that right now he would, the whole versus with musicians, he would love to do a versus battle against Chappelle, which by the way, I love Damon Wayans. No one's whipping Chappelle in versus. Well, hold on, hold on. Let's talk this out. Well, what is, because well, I read that too. And I thought, now are we talking, what are we talking? Are we, because with, with, with musicians, all you have is music, but you don't just play the shit on their CDs. You play when they were on other CDs too, right? Yep. So if we're talking, if we're talking all like full scope. In living color. In living color, uh, the Damon Wayne show uh, and movies and stand up. You actually, I didn't think about that. If you use the verses, you're right. If, if you're featured anywhere, like Scott Storch is like in every fucking hit of all time, but no one knows that it's Scott Storch. And then he's rolling out like every 50 cent song. You're right. Like if you roll out everything Wayans has been in, his resume strengthens significantly. Yeah. And it just, and it just gets convoluted. And obviously I think Dave's the fucking greatest comic that we have. I, I, I want to make sure I say that. And Dave's stand up, you know, is, I, I think if you're talking stand up for stand up, I think, you know, what Dave's put out is, is, is pretty monumental. It's hard to go head to head. But I don't know. I, I, you know, I think Chappelle show versus in living color. I mean, first of all, let's be real. You wouldn't have Chappelle show if there wasn't in living color. That's the truth. Boy. And Damon Wayans was a standout star on in living color, like a, a standout star. And Damon, I'm a, I'm a, by the way, and, and I should be very clear. I am a huge Damon Wayans fan. Like, Huge Damon Wayans fan. I think he is one of the better storytellers, one of the best storytellers out there. And uh, so I think it would be interesting. I, I I love that people shut it down immediately because I put it on my social media and said, who do you think will win? And everyone's like, Chappelle. I go, no, no, no. What are, you're not thinking about it. You're going like, you think I just said, who's better? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying who will win in a versus. That would be interesting. What the real versus should be is like Judd Apatow versus uh, who's the guy who did... Um, Judd Apatow versus uh, the fucking guy who did uh, Hangover. Who's what his name? Oh, oh, Todd. Um, Todd Phillips. Todd Phillips. Judd Apatow versus Todd Phillips. And don't go movie for movie. Just go scene. Like scenes that they were a part of and pull it apart. And, and Judd Apatow gets to all his movies and Todd Phillips gets all his movies. And it's just little things where, you know, Zach's funny in a scene or, or you know, like that would be, I would love to see movie producer producer versus movie producer or director versus director, you know? Hey, Bert, can you chat me your legendary contacts information? Because I'm ready to pitch this versus show to him. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hell of a fucking idea. I'm like, I'm like, let's fucking EP this sucker. Dude, I'm like, I had an idea one time and I was like, I was like, this is a great idea. And I, I went in and I took it somewhere and I go, I want to do a movie called Scene. I want to do a TV show called Scene Stealers where every comic gets to perform their favorite scene in a movie, where we go to the same location, we rent the location, we get similar actors because the comic casts it, and you do a scene in a movie, and my scene always is going to be from Boogie Nights when he's smoking crack and the Chinese guy's throwing fireworks around. I want to play that guy in the robe, in the underwear, and comes out, come on, babies! I want to play that scene, right? And they're like, that sounds great, man how are you going to get the rights to all these movies? And I was like, I didn't think about that. And they're like, 
what do we think Star Wars is going to let us recreate Star Wars? And I was like, hmm. I did, I did a, I did a Mickey Mantle because I, I talk about the, having the Mickey Mantle gene. I did this Mickey Mantle gene T-shirt and I made it and I ordered a ton and I wore it on Two Bears One Cave and I was like, new merch drop. And Segura's like, cool. Like how how how's uh how are the mantles involved with that? And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, I mean, you can't just can't just <laughs> make a shirt that says Mickey Mantle on it and sell it and, and have it Yankees colors and his number on it. And I was like, yeah, you can. And he goes, you definitely can. And I said, sure you can. And he goes, okay, well, I have a new line. It's called Air Jordans. <laughs> I went, oh shit, you can't, can you? And he was like, how many of these shirts did you make? And I was like, 150. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think things through all the time. Bro, this was awesome. I, I'm so happy we got to catch up. Dude, it's good do... to see you again. I remember. I, I definitely remember that interview. It's good to see you again. I'm fucking. It's been a long time. I think I was promoting Bert the Conqueror or Trip Flip. That's what it was. It was some trap. Fucking. I do. I've been doing this for a fucking decade, so I forget all the projects. But it was definitely some Travel Channel show, and I remember laughing my ass off. And I was prepping Rachel, and I was like, Rachel, he's electric in person. Get ready. <laughs> It's so funny because that's when you when I look back at my experience with Travel Channel, they would did not like my personality. They were like, "Hey, can you not just get? Can you just talk about the brand? Talk about adventures in travel. You like to get lost in a city. You like to have a good time. You're a wholesome fun." And I remember doing your show and being like, "Oh yeah, I get blackout drunk." <laughs> the publicist is probably like, "This guy's not fucking lasting on this network." <laughs> oh, I remember that. I remember I got offered at, around that time. I, I think it was around that time. Um, I got a kind of a soft offer to do Letterman. And I was like, and I told the publicist that day, I told the top publicist, I was like, yeah, I think I'm doing Letterman. And they're like, you're, de you're definitely not doing Letterman. And I was like, no, I think I am. And one publicist said, first of all, mark my words, you will not get on Letterman. That will not happen there. You're nobody. And then the other one went, and by the way, if you get on Letterman, Travel Channel will kill that in a heartbeat. And I was like, oh, and I got an offer to be on Letterman the day they canceled Birth the Conqueror. And I went, I guess I don't have to tell anyone about this. And so I went and did Letterman. And then I got a call two weeks later and they're like, hey, we'd like to sign you to a deal. Can you do Trip Flip? And then I ended up working for them for another five years, maybe seven years. But uh, but it was right after they canceled Birth of Conquer. And uh, yeah, and I ended up doing Letterman, fucking highlight of my career. That's awesome. Dude, this was blast. Thank you for taking the time, Bert. Let me do all these final plugs. I want to make sure. Birdie Please. Boy Relapse Tour starting in Red Rocks. You got the bird cast as well as two bear, one cave. I'm like reading all the, I'm like fucking, there's a whole bibliography of shit here. And the machine's on its way out and you got the go big show on TBS. Fucking awesome, man. Really awesome. Thank you, brother. It's good seeing you again. Same, same here, my man. You're welcome back anytime. Thanks for a great time, man. Please, please, please. I'll hit you up next time. Any, any, uh, trust me, I love doing this shit. I'll, I'll be like, right, let's do, you know, my wife's on vacation. We should maybe do an interview. <laughs> I just want to FaceTime Snoop with you. That's my new life goal. I just want to fucking hear Snoop be like, Burr Kreischer, you're a bad motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> you're awesome. Thanks so much, Burt. Thank you, brother. I'll talk to you later. See you, brother. All right, folks. I mean, was that a banger of an episode or what? Three amazing guests. I loved all three of these guys. Couldn't have asked for a better episode. Now, what I'm asking for is subscribe, rate, show us the love. Tell us you're listening and watching Endless Hustle. <laughs> Tell us you're listening to and watching Endless Hustle. And follow us on social media. Endless Hustle is 
on Twitter at endless double underscore hustle, on Instagram at endless hustle pod. Me, I'm at Arthur Cade on Twitter, at it's me, Arthur Cade on Instagram. We are back on Thursday with another great episode, another triple header. We'll see you all then. Thanks as always for listening and watching. We love the support. We are quickly trekking towards 100 episodes. I can't believe it. Feels like yesterday that we started the show. And here we are getting the biggest names in the business and many, many more to come and other developments, other fun ways we're evolving this show. Stay tuned. See y'all Thursday. <laughs>